for the rest of us, you can open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Where we've been at, where we will be again today, even in light of our communion, because they tie in so well. Not just this first passage here, as we see in Mark 14, verses 22, where it's the description of the Lord's Supper. But even in the garden, there's a point I would like to draw. So we see here, this is the first Lord's Supper, though there have been hundreds of thousands, millions since. But this is what established it all. It says, as they were eating, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, gave it to them, and said, take it. This is my body. And then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them And they all drank from it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Many of us have heard this. Many of us for years, or if not decades, have participated in the Lord's Supper. In this church, uh, whether you grew up Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic or in many of the faith traditions, all of them center on still and put an emphasis and a focus upon this practice that was a set down and established by Christ. Many of the other translations are in the other accounts in the Gospels in this part. It says, you know, do this whenever you are together. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of my death. And in studying for this, I was drawn to some of the I am passages. Christ says, you know, I am the I am. Christ tells us he is the vine. Christ tells us he is the bread of life. All of them drawing attention toward and leading up to this moment here. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how Christ is the new Passover, how he is the completion of the Passover, which was established while the Jews were still enslaved to Egypt. And yet he is the fulfillment of it, and he is so much more. And how at the Passover, they would have to drink, and they would eat the lamb that was sacrificed for them, and they would cover their households in the blood over the doorways. And then we see here this this work of what he has done, of what he's about to do upon the cross for us. That just as the bread is broken, his body would be broken. That just as his flesh would be torn, so too after his death, the veil would be torn. And, And no longer would man be separated from the holy of holies. Now, because of what Christ has done, the breaking of his flesh, the pouring out of his blood upon the ground there in Jerusalem, upon that mountain, and upon all of us, the covering that we have of his blood upon our souls, upon our lives, that washes away all of our sin. Because of these things, we can now be restored to the communion with God 
that he intended for us even in the garden. And even in the garden, we see that God's desire was for man as he created by speaking into motion all the heavens, all the earth. He said, this is good. Night and day, this is good. All of these animals, this is good. This man, and when he saw man needed a partner, this woman, he said, this is good. And that was how we were to live, and that is how God has, through the work of himself, made it possible for us to live yet again, forever, in eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth that are coming for us. He will live amongst us, he will be our God, and we will be his people. There will be no more tears and no more death. But until that time of final restoration of finally being in, being on this earth, a new one, and yet in his presence, living with him, communing with him, until that time, in every aspect, in every way in which he has established and given to us to know about him, to communicate with him, prayer, his word, the church, and this practice through his son. All of it is to draw us into communion with him. Now that's a word you've heard a thousand times and that you've said a thousand times and you've participated in this event that's called that and named that. But it's one of those things that we take for granted. It's one of those things that may have become stale, just like those crusty crackers we usually do for communion. You know what I'm saying? They they've become stale and it's no longer what God would desire it for it to be to us where we are coming together with him. Now, each and every day of your life with the spirit of God dwelling within you, with your ability and, and God's command for you to pray to him, with your access and the Holy Spirit's work through the word, which shares the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the word, who was the word, and who was with God in the beginning. In all these things, it's not about check marks or legalism of, well, I, I, I need to pray. I need to read. I need to go to church on Sunday. I need to do this and that. It's not about the need it's not about the task. It's about what that task does for you and is. When you are praying to God, you can pray directly to the God of the heavens and the earth, the one who spoke all things into motion, the one who loves you, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, who has given you the breath in your lungs today, who will give you tomorrow by the grace that he has for you, if that's his will for you, and who desires by command for you to talk to him, for you to acknowledge his presence, for you to take everything in your life before him, nothing too menial, nothing too small. God's desire is for you to live your life with him. How do we know that? Because God's desire also for us is to know and seek and find him 
in his word. Everything that he's left for us. Everything that through his providence, through his safeguarding, through his divine inspiration, he has passed down for generations and generations and generations so that you would have access to greater even than those who are in the earliest church. And we see in Acts chapter 2, those who were in the earliest church, when they did not have this, when all things were new, when they were just getting established, when they were just going against every way in which they had been taught their whole lives that they had to follow God with the law, with the sacraments, with the, the different festivals. Now, everything has been turned into what we see them practice in Acts chapter 2. Now what they have to be in communion with God and now what they have to worship Him and follow Him is that they would devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship with one another, into the breaking of bread. Because it's upon that, it's upon remembering what Christ has done that all of this is made possible. The veil has been torn. There's no temple we must travel to now to enter into the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice for our sin. Like That is no longer, God has made it so much easier for us. And we are blessed now today that if you would just believe by faith from hearing the truth, by believing in the truth, and by submitting to it, you may be saved. And through that salvation, you don't have to now travel to God. God is going to come and live in you. You are now his temple and his sanctum. The Holy Spirit resides within us. And so communing with God now is something that is our day-to-day and something we can abide in and experience through prayer, through being still, through speaking, through listening, through reading His Word, and through the power of the Holy Spirit it being alive and work in us. And these things are sacred. But today we don't get big on things that are sacred. Everything is trivialized. Everything is minimalized, but it's not something that's always been done. Man has always struggled to understand the greatness of God and to fall in line with with how we should recognize that. An example of that would be when Moses, when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. And, And Moses started to approach it and God said, no, 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 take your sandals off. This is holy ground. You're standing in the presence of God. We see this too here in the prayer in the garden. If you go to Mark chapter 14, look in verse 32, and we'll go from here. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to Deeply, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Two, uh, two commands, two things that Christ has asked his most inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Remain here, stay awake. And he went a little farther 
And he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. This is the culmination of Christ's life at the beginning of it. He knows he's about to be betrayed. He's already sent Judas off. He has shared in the Last Supper. He has taught with them the last things that they needed to know before this time. His work with them is done. His instruction for them is done. Now comes his portion and his part, which only he can do. And he said, verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then he came and he found them sleeping. He'd ask them for two things, stay awake and stay right here. And he said to them, couldn't you stay awake for one hour? He said to Peter Simon, are you sleeping Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? He was talking to some of you in here. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. That's a joke. He said, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. Saying the same thing. Going back to what he said earlier. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. This is the same humility and submission that Christ in his deity, his dual nature of both God and man, fought and struggled with and bore for our sake. We see that written in Philippians chapter 2, that it was because of his humility, because of his willingness, because of his submission before the Father as the Son, that his name will be above every other name, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and one day all knees will bow and all tongues will confess. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. And they did not know what to say to him. What do you say, Christ? Like, we know, can't they see him tear, his tears? Can't they see him sweating blood? So distressed, so caught up in knowing the things that are happening, knowing the will of God is moving, and yet the people around him are asleep and unfaithful to what he has asked for them to do. They don't understand how sacred and how powerful what God is doing around them is. Because he had to come back a third time and he had to say to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. My betrayer is near. So Christ came and he made our salvation possible. He poured out his blood for the sins of many. He did this as a covenant, as a promise between us. 
This is the, the th- why we celebrate communion, because it's a remembrance of what God has done for us, of this eternal promise. There are no new covenants coming. This was the last and the final between Abraham up until this point, over and over again, God had established his people. He had made his promises, all building up and leading towards the coming of Christ and the completion of God's redemptive plan for all man, which would be done by Christ on the cross. This was the last, this is the final covenant. This is what all promises hereforth stem upon, that Christ came, humbled himself, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and that through that work, your sins may be forgiven. Through that work, all your your sins and your debt of death to a righteous and holy God may be washed away and you may be justified by the blood of the Lamb. This is what communion celebrates and what it draws us back to. Even when we've gone throughout the weeks and the months when we've been distracted and caught up in the things of our lives and the things of this world, when we've fallen into temptation, when we've fallen away and are on the wrong path that is leading towards sin and death yet again, like a dog returning to his vomit, when we've been caught up and fallen asleep and not seeing the ways in which God is working in powerful, powerful ways all around us, when we've lost our sense of what is sacred, That is why it is so vital and so important for us to come back and to share in the breaking of the bread together how often as much as we meet. As much as we meet. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is the gospel. That is what God has commissioned us to shed and share with the whole world. For us to be lights of and mouthpieces of, to be couriers of the promises and the hope that comes with it. But just as they did in the garden, so too we fail and we fall so short. But we see in the rest of Scripture in 1 Corinthians, if you'd like to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verses 27 through 33, we read this, and we know that as Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, there is a way in which we are to approach something that is sacred, in reverence, the same way that there is a way in which you were supposed to approach the holy of holies, as we read in Leviticus, to where in which they came in the wrong way, men died. Now we're not promised death, but we are promised if we come to this table and we take in this bread and we drink of his blood and we don't do it in the right way, then we are drinking and eating judgment upon ourselves. The judgment for the saints who fall into sin is that of discipline from God, not damnation anymore. But that's why it's so important. And we read this as Paul is 
encouraging this church in Corinth who is so used to these pagan practices of getting drunk and having feasts when they were worshiping their false gods that now that as they worship the one true living God, he instructs them in this way. Verse 27, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the blood of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Directly sinning against Christ himself, against not just Christ, yes, his body, yes, his blood, but the way in which it was poured out for you so that you do not have to be a slave to sin and death any longer, that you do not have to live and walk in those ways any longer. And so when you are freed from those things and you do not repent of them, because God knows we will fail and we will fall short, But when you don't recognize that sin in your life, when you don't turn from it and repent of it in submission to God, who is your Savior, who is your Lord, you come and you take of this sacrifice that he made for you and you sin directly against him. And so Paul writes, he says, let a person examine himself and in this way let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. Take that as being physically dead or take that as being spiritually dead or asleep like those in the garden, not seeing the power of God moving around them, not recognizing and understanding what is sacred and what is holy. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. God's not going to leave you in your sin If you are one of his children, he will discipline you just like a father who loves their child, disciplines their child. We see that in Hebrews. We see that in much, many other places in Scripture. And so therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters when I come. This was what we're called to. Self-examination before a righteous and holy God and before we take part in a ceremony, a sacrament, a sacred thing that recognizes what Christ did for us. The breaking of his body, the pouring out of his blood, our God, the son of our God, I was thinking yesterday as I was playing with my girls, how willing would I be to have one of them killed for you? How willing would I be to not just have them killed for you, but to encourage you after being pleased at their crushing, as we see in Isaiah, but to encourage you to partake of their flesh and to partake of their blood. This is something only God the Father could do. 
But that's how important it is to him. He's like, don't you understand that this is my son? My son. And don't you understand that at the same time that this is my son, this is your Lord. And so, yes, this is sacred because he is sacred. This is holy because he is holy. And so, therefore, as Christ is holy and blameless, the flesh that you eat, the blood that you drink, these are blessed and sacred and holy and blameless as well, unlike anything else in this world. And so I would have been, if you can come up, in light of what we read here, in the need and in the availability to approach this table in a manner that is worthy, I'm going to have him play for a little bit, and I would invite you all to a time of prayer and to a time of self-reflection, to a time in which you and confess your sins before a holy and righteous God and know that because of what Christ has done, he is good and he is faithful to forgive you. That upon examining yourself before you take this bread and before you take this drink, that you can repent, that you can turn away, that you can be healed and that you can be free. I've been challenged so much lately in, in following the will of God and, and in pursuing a personal holiness that he has given and made available to us. And I've struggled with it in the sense of like all of us say that we fight and we struggle so that we don't sin. But do we do it to the extreme? Do we do it with the strength that God has given us? where in order if for me to follow his will, like, have I ever fought so hard against my own sin and temptation that I've sweated blood? That I've cried and I've prayed all night long? That I've gone and, and brought people around me to lay hands on me, to, to encourage me and to heal me? How hard are we fighting against the sin and temptation of this world? And and how powerful it is to, when you do start, to, I mean, really dig in against the sin and temptation of this world, to dig in against the ways in which you personally are drawn to sin and to failure, to understand how powerful God is in that moment. In my weakness, when I rely upon Him, His strength is made clear, and that His Spirit is within me, and that we can be free, and that we can have victory over sin and death because it's been made possible by what Christ has done. And so if you feel stuck, or you feel enslaved, or if you feel lost, I promise you, there is a God who is waiting for you to call upon Him for you to be saved, maybe for the first time, or maybe for the thousand, thousand at a time. He is good and faithful to forgive. So let us enter into a time of prayer and reflection now.